This is Claire Diaz-Ortiz, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? <laughs> No, I mean, like, this is a real question for you, Claire. Who who are you and what do you do? And let's give us the short version, then we'll unpack the long story. How's that? It's so funny, though, because I was just saying to my husband, I think, last night, how much I hate this question. Because, you know, we have, like, uh, three little kids and one of them's in school now. And so that's obviously, like, the typical question you meet, you hear from other parents. And I hate answering it because I'm always like, I don't know. <laughs> um I guess these days I write books. I, my name is Claire. I live in a far off land called Argentina with my three children under three. And I write books and um, speak about them and also write words on the internet. And I, I think those are the things I do for the most part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I write words. It's funny, actually, because you the books... I write words on the internet. A lot of us, I'm sure you were in the same boat, write, I never thought about it this way, but write lots of words on the internet first before <laughs> we ever get the chance to write books. But no, write, write books, several of which are, are great. Uh, the new one, uh, the, the occasion we're here to talk about is this new one-minute mentoring book that you co-wrote with a, uh, this guy named Clint, Ken Blanchard. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him. But also, uh, I have them on the back of my shelf here, Design Your Day, and I found this other book called The Better Life. I don't know if mm. you knew that there are still copies out there. Mm. Um, and they're, 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 ve they're all very, very good. So I'm excited to, to talk to you about those. But you also come from, a, uh, in my mind, you have sort of a really interesting history. So I don't know if a lot of people, if you look in the show notes for this episode, you'll notice something really interesting right off the bat, which is that your Twitter handle is literally at Claire. I know. Which is know. a really common first name, and yet you got it. You were the first one yeah. to claim it. Because you, yeah. were, you were involved in, in that, being one of the first employees there, um, and then walking away from that to do all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. tell it, so tell us a little bit about your history before we dive into One Minute Mentoring and the other books. Yeah. So, I mean, my story, I, it starts with, I went to, I, I've always sort of had this problem of, of doing kind of too many things and then, um, facing burnout and then trying to like get back from that. And so I, in college, um, I did a master's degree and my regular undergraduate in four years. And so by the time I was done, I was super, super burned out and I just didn't know what to do next. And my health was really bad. 
And so I had read this book about these, about this retired, this American couple who were retiring and they didn't want to retire in the US. And so they retired to this little town in Mexico. And I read this book and I said, okay, I'm going to go there, right? Because I was, you know, 22, obviously. Um, so I moved to this tiny town in Mexico. And at the time I had this really crappy but wonderful online editing job that I'd started when I was 18 and had paid for a bunch of college. And it was just this awesome, awesome gig. And so I basically lived in Mexico for a year doing this crappy job that, you know, paid my bills and kind of got my got my health back and got my bearings back and kind of started thinking, okay, what do I what do I really want to do next? Right. I just finished this graduate degree in anthropology and I, I wanted to do some things with nonprofits in, in, in weird countries, and I, I didn't really know where to start. And so I realized that, you know, one of the, the big dreams that I always had was this idea of traveling around the world for a year. So doing this full on trip around the world. And so I convinced my best friend to come with me and we went on a trip around the world. And it was the end of the last country on that trip after nine months of traveling was Kenya. And we went to Kenya to climb a mountain. Um, at the time, I was quite athletic. Uh, we'd climbed to the base camp of Mount Everest and we'd run a couple of marathons. And so we go to Kenya to climb this mountain. And a friend of a friend says, hey, if you're going to go climb Mount Kenya, you should stay overnight at this guest house because you know, I know the people that run the guest house and it's, it's free or it's nearly free. Right. And at the time we did anything, if it had sort of those qualifications of being insanely cheap or potentially free. So we said, sure, we'll stay overnight at this guest house. And it turned out that the guest house was owned by an orphanage. And so when we arrived there, the, the elders of, of the orphanage. Um, so there was a church and an orphanage and a guest house, and it was sort of the elders involved in all this invited us to a lunch and it was in the middle of that lunch that for me, things just took a, a total, you know, total left turn. Um, and I excused myself in the middle of lunch to go use the restroom, which was sort of at the back of this rectory in the church. And I remember looking in this old mirror and just really knowing that, you know, something was about to really change in my life. And so I, I went back, um, you know, to the to the lunch and <laughs> told, you know, my best friend, Laura, I'm not going to climb the mountain. I'm going to stay here. And just sort of think about things because I think maybe I want to stay here longer. I'm not really sure. So she goes off and climbs the mountain. She comes back maybe four or five days later. And, you know, by that point, I've decided I want to I want to stay living in this orphanage for, you know, the better part of the next year. And um, she was also in sort of a similar stage of life of not really sure what she wanted to do. And she was also putting off medical school at the time. So she agreed to stay with me. So we essentially ended up living at this orphanage for the better part of the next year, starting this nonprofit organization. And really the whole reason we, we got it off the ground was because through our travels around the world, we had started this blog and the blog had become popular. And, you know, at the time, if you were starting a blog in 2006, you were probably doing it on Blogspot. So, you know, Blogger was who owned them. And Oh, the come on. I had a live journal. Come on. Oh, well, that's, well, that's, but, oh, sorry. And if, Zanga. If starting, come on. Those things existed. starting a blog in 2006 and didn't know how to, use, how to code, I should say. <laughs> All right? right. That's fair. Because I feel like live journal was kind of more like for techies, right? Or, or people who, who knew how to like put, right? Yeah, think? no, a little bit. I, there was there was a time when there was Zanga too, which was sort of like a a oh, social yeah, network slash blog, but it wasn't oh, public the way Blogspot was. Right. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. The social network slash blog. Yes. Yes. Oh. My Zanga is probably still out there somewhere. Actually, I should I should Google that. 
I've actually had nightmares that my MySpace is somewhere out there. How oh, do I, I get that down? I deliberately closed it down. I, this was like four years ago. I found a way to actually close it down. Um, so it's doable. I know I had, it's out there. Yeah, there. yeah. All right, so we're getting way off track, though. So, yeah, so, so, um, so you know, I had started. We had started this blog in 2006 while we were traveling around the world, and the people who started Blogger were the people who started Twitter. So they had found our blog at some point and liked it and, you know, started promoting it. And so we got a bunch of followers on our blog that way. And so when they started Twitter, they said, hey, you know, why don't you guys start tweeting about your travels and then about your, you know, what you're up to right now in these weird countries. And so essentially it was by being an early user at Twitter and by having this blog that we were able to get this nonprofit off the ground. And this kind of was an interesting uh, foray for me into the world of digital media, it kind of brought together a lot of things I liked, writing and connecting with people and that sort of thing. And so flash forward to about a year later, and I'm in business school in the UK, and um, one of the co-founders of Twitter comes over to give a speech at the school. And because, you know, I had been in touch with them for the last year and a half, he and I basically met and talked about sort of, you know, my interest in trying to figure out how technology and nonprofits could better come together and his interest in making Twitter as this young company um, be a, a platform that could actually be used proactively for good, essentially. So he... Um, you know, said, hey, why don't you come do this internship at Twitter? And so a few months later, when school was out, when I was done with my degree, I did a, an internship at Twitter for a few months and wrote my like thesis for my MBA while I was there. And then the internship just never ended. Essentially, it just turned into a job. And well, so I hope I they started. gave you a raise when the internship was over and turned into That's a real true. job. That's yeah, right. That's true. I will say it was a paid internship, which was not I not my experience of internships until that experience. Nice. Good for them. I, we could get in. We could get into all sorts of research on the benefits of paid internships versus unpaid internships. But let's not get into that. In 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 fact, um, let's talk about me mentoring, shall we? So you are. Um, what I think is interesting in this is your story is more broad, diverse. I think you've got probably an entire lifetime's worth of experiences crammed into your career thus far. And probably one of the reasons for that is that not just in the business context, but in the context of how do you start this nonprofit, how do you successfully run an orphanage, all of these sort of things, you've had to rely uh, on mentors. The thing that I think is interesting is that we're at this stage where I, I don't know if we're we're at we're probably just past peak mentor, where it was like everyone was talking about mm. um, mentoring, putting mentoring programs in the workplace, et cetera. I, my own personal theory is that a lot of these mandatory sort of mentoring pairing things don't necessarily work all that effectively because they're mandatory. But in, mm -hmm. re in reading One Minute Mentoring, I found out there's probably a lot more that's going wrong, wrong in that. Now, that said, mm -hmm. I am guessing that the reason this is so packed with awesome insights about mentoring is because you've had some good and also some terrible people um, serving as mentors in your life and maybe been on the opposite end of that too. So learned the hard way, right? School of hard knocks of mentoring, if mm -hmm. you will. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so for me, one of my first, or I don't know if you should say first, because I think most people's first mentors are probably teachers when they are maybe in, in grade school, certainly in high school, certainly in university, right? But an early sort of career mentor was one who um, definitely came to me through the pages, um, which sounds kind of 
uh, woo woo, but but it's true. I was, you know, living in Kenya. We had a volunteer come over for a nonprofit who brought this book with her called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World by this guy named John Wood and who who was a Microsoft executive who left Microsoft to start this nonprofit called Room to Read. Um, this is about 20 years ago. You know, Room to Read these days is the largest nonprofit looking at issues of girls literacy in the world. It works in a bunch of different countries. And so I read this book just like cover to cover, was completely fascinated by it and learned so much from it and took so much from it into, you know, at that point, my my life sort of starting this small nonprofit. And that was really a, a powerful early mentoring experience for me in my career because it taught me um, not only sort of, you know, tactical stuff about running a nonprofit and what it means to sort of ideologically be a social entrepreneur and, entrepreneur and all that. But it also taught me how how a mentoring relationship can really change and grow over time because, you know, so this was 2006, 2007, I'm reading his book and two years later, I'm at Twitter and we're, we're you know, deciding about a big sort of nonprofit initiative we're doing and, you know, we or I choose Room to Read as the, you know, beneficiary and then all of a sudden, you know, I get to meet John Wood and I'm sitting there as he's giving us a talk one day while we eat, you know, Indian food at lunch at the Twitter offices. And I'm having this moment of being like, oh, wow, you know, this has sort of come full circle. Um, and so, so there have been moments like that in my life, for sure, um, where you have this powerful mentor that is someone you you maybe have studied the work of. Um, and of course, that happened again when Ken Blanchard and I wrote this book together because he had been someone whose whose work I had read, whose work I had you know been really impacted by. And then when we started writing together, it was you know another one of these sort of you know coming full circle type type deals. Well, and I think that's really cool because your you, your book talks a bit about this idea that like we t- so we tend to think of mentoring relationships. Let's use you and Ken Blanchard as you know the 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 wise sage and the young protege, right? And always that sort of vertical type relationship where there's somebody with vast amounts of experience and somebody who wants to benefit from that experience. But what you're talking about in both cases is really you're you may be starting out that way, but you're arriving at this peer to peer type mentoring relationship. And really, that's what I love about the book is it speaks to this idea that the power dynamic is not always strictly vertical. Peer-to-peer happens. Sometimes it happens even in reverse. Um, Mm -hmm. It can happen in a variety of different, for lack of a better term, power contexts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, this was one of the first things that Ken taught me was, you know, I went into the process of, you know, we were introduced, I guess, three years ago now, probably more or less. And when we started sort of this this book project, and I went into it assuming that I would sort of be the you know scribe um, taking down Ken Blanchard's wisdom. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that I would be you know writing down notes and you know you know remember trying to remember all day all the smart things he was saying, and then going home and studying them at night. And it was pretty early on that you know he made it clear that you know this is this is a two way relationship. We each have things to teach one another, and so I think. That was um, an important lesson for me, but also a really important lesson for for me as one of the authors of this book about mentoring, because then the book we ended up writing is a book showing that, you know, the best mentoring relationships are these two way streets, essentially. So how do because you mentioned a bit about how you got started with um, Ken Blanchard, but how how like so I made a I made a reference to of like the joking argument about 
why sometimes the corporate mentoring programs don't necessarily work because they're kind of like mandatory. People get randomly paired together, et cetera. How, mm-hmm. how do you, let's say you're in that role where you're looking for a mentor in something. You know you've got a knowledge gap or a, a, a skills gap or really just that you're at the beginning age, stages of your career. How do, the, how do the best mentoring relationships get started? Or what should, if I'm in that situation, what should I do to start seeking out one of these relationships? So the best mentoring relationships definitely get started with, um, as Ken would say, essence, not form. So he has this story where basically early on in his career, he was taught by a mentor about the importance of relationships really emphasizing essence before they emphasize form. And so, you know, this basically means that, you know, instead of sitting down with a potential mentor or potential mentee and immediately discussing, you know, the ways you are only going to uh, talk on Skype and you're never going to text each other or, you know, the, the ways that you're only going to have breakfast and, you know, never write emails to one another or whatever it may be, you instead, you know, dive into sort of the essence of if you are, a fit for one another, you know, do you have shared values? Do you have rapport? These sorts of questions, these sorts of things. So, I mean, I think the best mentoring relationships are, are going to be ones where essence is there. And I mean, you see all kinds of failed mentoring, you know, the, the world is littered with failed mentoring relationships. And I think one of the biggest problems, you know, it falls within this idea of sort of there being a lack of essence in the relationship to get started, but it's really specifically about this sort of false idea that, you know, a great mentor is, is maybe a, you know, a shiny, fancy, famous person, right? Because I think that is something that a lot of people who think they want to mentor either consciously or subconsciously think they, they need or pursue is, you know, someone that seems really great on paper and whether that's someone within their organization or whether it's someone, you know, they, they reach out to online or whatever it may be. And, not really understanding if they're actually shared values and if you can actually help one another. Do you know what I mean? It's it's similar to asking asking, you know, an influencer to to send out a tweet for your product but not actually building sort of a, a real a real relationship or real connection about that product, right? Like how it's how much how much you really going to get with that. Oh, totally. And and you know, I think I think the really interesting thing you said was this idea that essence is more important than form. So I, you know, I, my, um, one of my gigs, one of my side hustles is I work as a professor, right? And I was a full-time professor mm-hmm. for a long time. And, and when you do that, um, especially to undergrads, you, you, I mean, I lost count of the number of students that come in and like, do you mentor any students or would you, would you be like, literally mm-hmm. it's an awkward conversation to begin with. Right. Is mm-hmm. the, because you don't have that rapport element. You're like, no, you're, you're like that kid in my mm-hmm. class that slacks off half the time, but you're in love <laughs> with the idea of having a mentor. Right. Right. But he but read then, a BuzzFeed article saying that he needs one. Right. 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 And then, but then there's also this mentality that like what that means is we're going to meet together for coffee every Friday and talk about <laughs> mm-hmm. the whatever. And then I think about like probably the one undergraduate student I would actually say, like I could look at and be like, yeah, I was definitely this guy's mentor. And it never looked like that formal relationship, right? It, it had the essence of it. It had the, I'm here when you need me. I hope you don't need me every Friday morning, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or I hope mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. only need mm-hmm. me versus mm-hmm. text or whatever. It's, it's, again, like you said, that essence idea as opposed to that form. And I didn't mm-hmm. know that BuzzFeed was running around writing articles about mentoring. Yeah, I think that was a a, a miss a miss a misspoken comment on my. No, I would that. look. I wouldn't put it past them if it gets clicks. They're probably uh they're probably gonna do it. <laughs> 
no, they've probably done at some point in time the like ten famous mentors of all time, and then you like click on it, and it's like Harry Potter, and and then there's whatever. like a there's like a related links thing that's actually like a paid advertisement for click here to find out how to get a a high quality mentor. Yeah, and exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, and again, I think that speaks to this idea that a lot of times when you when you force it or when you pair people up, it's not working because you don't have that level of essence fit. You don't have that mission fit, that shared values, et cetera. I also think sometimes that like, and your, your book really, this stood out to me too, is the opportunity piece is there too. Like there has to be a reason, something that sprung together. You know, in your case with mm-hmm. you and Ken Blanchard, mm-hmm. it was the writing of the book, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't It doesn't do well to just pick someone who's your mentor and then go off and think, okay, I've got, I've got that covered. Now let me go off and, and conquer the world. And you end up actually not needing anything from that person. You decide was your mentor because you went a totally different way in life. Right. And I think that there's a tension there that's interesting to explore because there is a difference between mentoring and coaching. Right. And I think that this is, Oh, I love that. That was actually my next thing I was planning to talk about. So this is great. Let's just dive right to it. Because there. I think particularly in this day and age that those two things have been totally conflated. And, you know, I I think the main difference between those two is that I think of mentoring as holistic, much more holistic, whereas coaching is often about sort of a specific issue, typically performance based or something. Right. So when, you know, you are saying there does have to be sort of like a reason to start a mentoring relationship or essentially, you know, something you want to talk about. I absolutely agree 100%. But I do think that 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 thing you want to work through is more holistic than the type of thing you would go for to a coach for. Yeah, I mean, I always I always thought of it as like, um, that a mentor will help you figure out what to do with your life or where to go in your career, mm-hmm, et cetera. Mm-hmm, and then a, a mm-hmm. coach will help you develop the skills to get there, right? One is mm. one is helping you plan the journey or, or really one is helping you identify the right journey. And then the other yeah. is going, okay, well, here's how to use Google Maps. Here's how to drive a car. Here's how to make sure that mm-hmm. you're, you, know, you have checkpoints along the way. It's all of the skills that get you there. But that's a different role than playing out. Yes. I mean, I, su- I suppose that one person could fill both roles. Um, but I think it takes a lot of clarity of knowing when you're which one. Yes, I think one person could potentially, but I think it's hard. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, this this brings up an interesting question, though, because the other sort of, uh, if we talk about the journey and we talk about all those different things, we tend to also, in addition to that, that high power dynamic, we tend to also think of like, there being one mentor, right? We like, and maybe not on mentor, but we use, we usually use the term protege as if you're protege Mm -hmm. of a specific person. And and that sends this sort of message that there is sort of one career in life mentor, right? You know, so-and-so was mentored by this person. Now I know what to expect because I know this other person, right? Almost rabbinical, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. yet, you know, one of the things we, we need to learn on our journey is that mentors are coming from sort of everywhere and that they come into your life for a time, even though they help you with course, with navigate, with choosing the right course to navigate, they're still not with you along the entire journey a lot of times. Right. I mean, I was, someone was interviewing me about the book and they were saying, they were sharing their own personal sort of mentoring story that they have been a mentor for someone for the last couple of years. And yet they feel like over the last year, there sort of hasn't really been a lot of action or, you know, it's sort of, 
they're kind of in like a stale place and um, they're not really learning much from each other essentially. And the person interviewing me was asking me, you know, so what should I do? Should I be breaking up with my mentee? And I was saying, no, no, you know, don't break up with your mentee because I think the whole idea of a great mentoring partnership or, you know, the, the really great thing that can happen if you have a good mentoring partnership or mentoring relationship is that, you know, you will go through sort of times of plenty and then sort of those fallow times also, right? So you will have those those years and those seasons where you are very engaged and you're both learning a lot from each other, but then you will have seasons that aren't like that at all. But it doesn't mean you have to, you know, cut off things. It's just that you always have that mentor or mentee back in your back pocket in the future. And I think that's really important. Yeah, no, and I think I think too that carrying them in addition to sort of that falling away from um, communicating and and like I don't know I'm listening to that story and I'm thinking you know the, the phone works two ways but anyway um, <laughs> the the other thing that happens I think a lot of times if you if you continue the relationship for so long you end up as the, as the protege as the mentee you can sometimes end up disappointed because. Yeah in your mentor, either because they're not doing sort of what you think is the right thing you need now, or because you know, just the direction that you're going is different than theirs. And then you watch their actions and you're disappointed, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so I think knowing when to end the relationship is a big deal in terms of that, that season's approach. I think also knowing when to turn around and sort of, it's your turn to, to play the different role with a, a third person, right? And it's your turn to turn from mentee to mentor is also a hugely important transition. Yes, it's a hugely important transition. And I think another aspect of that, that I think people often don't realize is you can be, you know, both at the same time. So, you know, I I would, I would hope that most people listening who are interested in mentoring realize that, you know, at this moment in time, they can be both a mentor and a mentee. Yeah. So, all right. So here, my, my sort of final question, because we spent a lot of time talking about um, from the mentee perspective and what to look for and how to understand this pairing, et cetera. You are, let's, let's play the different role. I am about to begin sort of, I, I, there's this person essence, there's a relationship there. There's some reason why we should have a more, um, in-depth relationship, mentor mentee relationship. What are the sort of things I should make sure to do? And what are the things I should make sure not to do? Sure. So, I mean, we basically in, in one ment- in one minute mentoring this book, we lay out sort of this, this framework, um, you know, the mentor model, we call it, you know, it's an acronym for the sort of six steps we think, or, or six elements that we think are really important in a mentoring partnership. And I think some of the first few are, are the most critical. So, you know, M is for mission, as we say, I think that in any mentoring partnership, I do think you need some type of mission statement. I think that sounds potentially really more formal than it needs to be, but it's basically some sort of clarification of intention of, of what you think you're coming together for, right? So, you know, we talked about this idea that um, a mentoring partnership is often about, you know, helping helping a mentee identify, identify a journey, right, that they need to go on or identify where they where they are in their journey or where they need to go next. And that element or, you know, that, that decision point is, is a good, is a good sort of, um, you know, good baseline for coming up with a mission statement, essentially, you know, what, what are you each trying to get out of this relationship? And I, I do think that's an important thing to kind of um, start with. 
Um, I would say the the next most important thing is, you know, this idea of engagement. So figuring out what kind of engagement you want to have with each other. So how you're going to communicate and how frequently. And, you know, it can be whatever, you know, some people it can be phone, phones, some people it's texting, you know, it's about your personality. But I think more than anything, you need that regular engagement with one another in the beginning to get the relationship off to a good start, essentially. I mean, we all, you know, have had those experiences of, you know, you go on a some sort of a, a work retreat or something, and you have this really intense, engaged time with someone for a short period of time, and then that allows you to then sort of take take off more time from each other as as life goes forward. And I think the same is true of a mentoring relationship. You know, if you set the groundwork by having biweekly meetings, you know, a meeting every two weeks for the first couple months then you've you've developed a relationship and can, you know, and then can sort of let things slide a little bit more. So I just want to go on record as saying if anyone is looking for a mentor, my rules of engagement are going to be that we use Zanga to communicate amongst each. No, I'm totally, I'm totally uh. kidding. But but that was my way of going full circle, Claire, with with you on the ideas mm-hmm. of this book. No, I, I really, I highly encourage people to take it out. I'll let you in on a dirty little secret about the book. Claire probably doesn't mm. want me to say this. It mm. doesn't take a minute. It doesn't take one minute mm. to do it. Mm. Um, it might take one minute to get that sort of check-in, but I, it's a relationship you're going to be thinking about uh, for a long time. It's a relationship you're going to be spending a lot of mental energy on and have a lot of benefits, not just from being a mentee, but also being a mentor. So if you want to learn how to do it right, you might as well learn from the people that have got it down to a pretty cool system in one minute mentoring. With, with all of that said, though, I want you to check out the book, but I also want to turn some attention from the book and those ideas to you, Claire. We talked a bit about you at the top of the hour, uh, the top of the podcast, but we have a few questions we ask all guests. And so I want to give you your turn in the lightning round if you're ready. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm focused and ready. <laughs> so our first question is, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, a very mentoring question, right? Um, when I was in second grade, the teacher told, Mrs. Taylor told my parents at a parent-teacher conference that Claire just needs to chill out sometimes. And I believe that that was probably the best advice I've ever received, even though I didn't, I wasn't even there to receive it. It's funny. I was actually thinking you were going to say like the opposite. Like, and so then oh. she came to me and was mm. like, don't ever let anybody tell you to chill out or whatever. All right. But mm. I know that's, mm. I'm probably the same way. I probably need to chill mm. out most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you, you talked a little bit about this in the idea of, you're not retiring in a small village in Mexico, but one of the things that you um, write about and think about a lot is lifestyle design, productivity, the design of a day. So I'm really interested to hear this answer for you. What does an ideal work day look like for you? Oh, okay. So an ideal work day involves me getting up at a reasonable time, which, you know, we have little kids. Um, so, you know, not getting up super early, but definitely not getting up late. So getting up at a reasonable time, having some amount of family time in the morning, and then leaving the house to go work for, I'd say, about six hours and doing all my work while I'm there and starting off my work with, you know, a, a sort of morning, morning routine and then turning off my phone 
uh, putting it into airplane mode when I'm done with those six hours and coming home and being with family. And that's absolutely my ideal work day. So totally separating those two spheres and being on when I'm on in each of those spheres. Six is a really specific number. What, what is it about six hours? Well, I'm kind of into this thing of like 90 minute. I think I think that you can do or I can do great work in sort of 90 minute bursts. And so I kind of try to identify. I mean, I say six hours, but it's probably realistically with breaks in there, maybe about six and a half hours. Oh, so, it's it's four, so it's four, four 90 minute cycle. I got yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's kind of the idea. Yeah. Nice. What are you reading right now? Um, a lot of things. Um, I read a lot of things at a once. Lot of, a One lot of, of the words books, on the internet. Yeah. One of the <laughs> books I'm reading right now, which is like a, a businessy thing is, um, who is it? Jen Sincero's You Are a Badass. Have you heard of it? I heard of it. I tried to read it. Yeah. I'm curious to get your take on it first before I tell you mine. I'm only 50 pages in. Okay. The That's about as, is yeah. how to stop doubting your greatness and start living an awesome life. Yeah. And, and there were moments like that where I really enjoyed it. It was, a, to me, it was a little, and maybe it was around page 51. So I don't know. It, <laughs> it got, it was a little too like the secret for me at times. Oh, you know well. what I mean? So, mm-hmm. and you know, I think she has the same approach as like, um, uh, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert in one of his books, he talks about the importance of sort of daily affirmations. And he actually says like, look, I don't actually think any of the weird mystical universe shaving thing. I just, I just know I tried it and it worked. And so you should try it too. And that's kind of her approach, but I'm still sort of like, mm, this is a little close to the like Oprah secret life for me. I'm not sure. I I'm had no it. idea he was into affirmations. That's shocking oh, to me. So you should, all right. So, so I'll tell wow. you, so you, sh- you should check out, he, his uh, sort of business productivity career slash memoir is called uh, How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big. Kind of, and the subtitle is Kind of the Story of My Life. And it's actually really good. Um, surprisingly good book. And he, he goes into affirmation. He has like two or three chapters devoted to affirmations at different periods in his life. It's really interesting. What do you believe that most people disagree with? So, I mean, you, you, people say, you say it and people think you're crazy or other people say it and you think they're crazy, that sort of idea. What is an idea that you sort of champion that you feel like is underrated, et cetera? Oh, I, I very, very, very firmly believe that our current work culture is completely broken. I think we are all like indoctrinated to overwork on a daily basis in, in corporations all over the world. And I think that... Most people don't get that at all. Well, all right. So most people don't get to work for bursts of 90 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, I know I tend to agree with you on that. And I think, I think that most people think that. I don't think most people have the sense of urgency that they need for it, if, if I may. That's, but we're pretty much on the same page on that. I love it. Well, because it's very, very hard to change an entire corporate culture, right? I mean... Most of us work in large organizations where there are these systems in place that keep us in lives where we have 25 hours of our 45-hour work week you know, spent in meetings and another 15 to 20 hours spent on email and then no time to do anything else except walk between those two things. Yeah. No, I'm totally so with you. Changing that culture is, is, is really, really hard. Yeah. I'm totally with you. So... Um, our final question, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In, in your view, what makes someone a leader? Mm. Um, I think, you know, being a leader is about identifying that 
sort of thing or maybe few things that you are particularly skilled at and then trying to figure out a way to teach other people about them. And I don't necessarily think it, it has to be in the traditional sense of teaching, whether it's like you, a professor, or, you know, like many people who might be, you know, teaching through a book they write or something. But I think figuring out some way to sort of pass on the knowledge that you have been able to, you know, uniquely garner from this life is, is being a leader. Hmm. Love it. I absolutely love it. So the book again is the current book is one minute mentoring. There's also some amazing ones around how to design your day and your life. And then if you're on, if you're into to this, Claire also has amazing thoughts on uh, Twitter for good, but also in general, sort of how to disrupt and, and better improve the nonprofit world. Claire is a woman of many, many talents. And so we're grateful she spent about the last 40 minutes talking about a few of them with us. Claire, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you so much. 